Hey, everybody, we have a really special podcast interview for you today with Professor Nicole Baumgart from Johns Hopkins University. She's the director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Disease Research and Education Institute. She has an extremely diverse background, both academically and professionally. She has a background in immunology, microbiology, veterinary medicine, and pathology. This interdisciplinary background has allowed her to investigate things in the Lyme world that nobody else has ever done before. This podcast is filled with facts and hope for the Lyme community that research into the immune system and other systems throughout the body can lead to a potential immune therapy or alternative therapy that can not only treat acute Lyme disease, but chronic Lyme disease patients as well. We're really excited to introduce Professor Baumgart to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hello, Professor Baumgart, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you. And, and and our folks are going to be really excited to hear from you as well. And, you know, offline, we were talking a little bit about this relationship that we um, have looked at through many different uh, prisms on this podcast. We've we've interviewed many, many doctors on this podcast whose expertise is in, uh, you know, in humans and in, in the human immune system. We've interviewed uh, many, many um, experts or entomologists or um, or uh, experts on uh, ticks and the tick vector. Uh, we've interviewed um, many experts who are microbiologists and macrobiologists who, um, you know, who have talked to us about the bug. But we've never had someone like you, uh, not just because you have this uh, multi multidisciplinary background, um, but also uh, we've not talked with somebody who is a doctor of veterinary medicine. And I think you bring a very unique prism or, you know, you can offer us a very unique prism to look through that we've just not had before. So we, we, we first want to just thank you for joining us on the podcast. And thank you for being the first person in our 360 um, uh, podcast interview um, roster uh, coming from your background and the unique perspective that you have from your training, both uh, in Germany and Australia, here in the U.S., and then, of course, the work that you've done as a professor. So why don't we start there, Professor? Why don't you first share with us where you're currently working and the type of work that you're doing, and then let's walk it back and talk about the work that you were doing when you were working in California, and then build out your educational background, both uh, both when you were studying at Stanford, when you were studying um, in, uh, in Australia, and then, of course, when you were studying in Europe. Right. Okay. Well, yes. In other words, I'm old, so <laughs> I've done a lot already. No, no, you're really cool. Um, That's what you are. <laughs> so I just, uh, last July, I started a position. I actually physically moved here at the beginning of 2023, so I, it still all feels very new. Uh, but I moved to uh, Johns Hopkins to the Department of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology, in the Bloomberg School of Public Health um, because uh, the department um, had decided that they wanted to build an institute focused on Lyme and other tick-borne diseases. And um, I was, um, I had have colleagues at Hopkins uh, with whom I had collaborated, particularly Mark Solowski, who was in the center, Lyme Disease Center in the medical school. And he convinced me to apply and I thought I had nothing to lose. And, you know, here we are a few years later. <laughs> well, we're really happy he made that, made that case to you to apply. I, um, I'm very excited. It's not often that one has the chance to start something and, um, uh, something new and 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 sort of you know um, I, so that's what I hope to do. I will continue doing the research in my lab that I've been doing, and I hope to really um, set up a new institute that um, 
that um, focuses um, on and that really embraces the breadth of what you have to do if you want to understand tick-borne diseases um, and, and Lyme disease, because it is not just an infection of humans that makes us ill. Um, it also occurs in nature. Um, as we know, right, it's out there, uh, rodents are infected and um, ticks transmitted. So there's so many moving parts there, the pathogens. Um, when we know about pathogens uh, that in ticks, there are sometimes many pathogens all in one tick, right? So it's so complex, right? So um, so I find that an amazing challenge and actually um, in its complexity. And I, I enjoy that idea of trying to um, identify the sort of critical components and build the institute to, to do research so that we can eventually affect public health, um, help, help the community to be less affected by this horrid disease. Um, well, we, we, we can't thank you enough for, for starting this new project um, at this, you know, at, at this major university, because you know, as, as a result of the work that Matt and I have done over the last uh, several years, we've we've come in contact with tens of thousands of people whose lives have been ruined by, you know, the, the chronic illness. We know there are millions of people around the world that are suffering from the, the chronic diseases caused by uh, Lyme. And for the purposes of this conversation, we'll say co-infections. We, yes. we are going to want to talk to you a little bit more about the definition of Lyme disease, but we'll we'll, we'll bookmark that for now. Uh, but we can't thank you enough for bringing your talents to uh, Hopkins and starting this this vital um, you know program and 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 it's really nice. Not only do we have a genius like you working on this, but you have all your geniuses who are students working with you. And I think that 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 uh, great work that you're going to be able to do with your students is going to be uh, vital to um, getting a leg up on this. So why don't you now walk back a little bit and talk about the, the work that you were doing uh, before you came to Hopkins, because you also had a, um, you know, a very, uh, I, I think, impressive uh, role when you were, when you were working in California. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, what my lab is really interested in is trying to understand uh, the host response, immune responses to pathogens generally. And we want to understand what works, what it gives us a good immune response. And then, uh, and we do that by using a mass model of influenza virus infections. Um, it really uh, induces in mice sort of everything you wish an immune response is like. It gives you every cell that you can imagine as responding in exactly the right way if you do the model right. Um, you get lifelong protection, lifelong immunity, right? That's sort of the holy grail. That's what we want. And so we study that to try and figure out what one would like to see in immune response. And then um, we are looking at uh, infections of mice with Borrelia burgdorferi, the causative agent of Lyme disease, of course, as, as all of you know, um, to try and figure out what's different here, right? Why is the immune response not good, right? Why is this bug not cleared from the mice? Because in mice, um, the uh, uh, the bug that causes Lyme disease in humans doesn't really cause disease or, or very mild disease at best. Um, what it does instead, it establishes persistent infection. It, it, it remains in the mouse for the life of the animal. And, and you know, after spending, um, after my colleague, Steve Barthold, who was the director of the Institute who recruited me to UC Davis, 
um, he sort of started chatting me up about the sort of B-cell responses, the antibody responses he saw. And um, the first two years, well, and, you know, arrogant in the beginning, I thought, oh, you know, how hard can it be? You study some B-cell responses to an infection, done that before, you know. And then I spent the next two years analyzing our data and everything, and the, the word weird came to mind. Everything was weird. Um, and so in flu, everything was clear in Lyme disease or Borrelia infection of mice. I don't want to call that Lyme disease. Everything was weird. And that really has me, um, has gotten us really interested in trying to understand why this doesn't look like a normal response and has given us ideas about um, what we really want to study, which is trying to understand what is wrong about the immune response uh, when you're infected with this bug. You, you mean the human, human response as opposed to the mouse response? Right. So I think what the way I, I'm looking at this sort of uh, Lyme disease problem is that you have to understand the life cycle of Borrelia burgdorferi. Borrelia burgdorferi needs to have, in order to fulfill its life cycle, uh, because it's transmitted by a tick, it needs a reservoir. The tick is not a reservoir because the adult tick, when it lays eggs, does not pass the bug on to the eggs. So all the ticks, tick eggs are sterile from a Borrelia burgdorferi standpoint. So it needs to find a host where it can sort of keep hanging out so that the ticks can come and bite it and transmit it. And, and the reality is that um, that natural reservoir are small rodents um, and birds. Um, and it's not just one animal. And the reason why we study this in mice is that it's, an, it's a natural infection. It's what this bug has evolved to want to be in. It wants to be in these mice because it can hang out there and evolutionary sort of um, balance that um, the bug has struck with the mouse is, okay, I can be in you and I don't make you sick, right? Because it wouldn't be good for the bug if it makes the mouse sick because the mouse are pretty much at the bottom of the food chain and every owl and every uh, predator that would come would, would uh, catch the mouse, which would be bad for the bug. So once you understand that, I think, once you understand that the goal of Borrelia burgdorferi is not to cause disease, it's just to hang out so that the tick can transmit it. I think you think about it different you think about differently about how you want to approach treating Lyme disease in humans, which is sort of an accident of nature, right? I mean, we're not supposed to be bitten by ticks. We are supposed to not be there. The the deer are supposed to be there where the other ticks feed on, right? So before we before we build that piece out, and I yeah. and we were excited about now to talk to you about this. Let's let's go a little bit further back into your background. So you yeah. were, you were from Germany. And, yeah. uh, and you had your primary university education in uh, in Germany, and your, uh, you were educated as a, uh, a doctor of veterinary medicine. So talk to us about that piece, because that's going to be an important part for our folks to uh, to uh, understand yeah. about you. What was what was what caused you to be passionate about uh, about studying uh, veterinary uh, medicine, and and how has that made you uniquely qualified to study what you're studying now? So, you know, I think it changed over time. I've wanted to be a veterinarian since I was about five years old, you know, so you, and I think I'm with a lot of other five-year-olds who want to be veterinarians. So 
um, by the time I, I went to vet school, I realized that what I was really excited about was um, uh, that, uh, multiple things. One was the um, that the treatment is often not about the individual. It is about um, the herd, um, you know, about the group of animals. And that you can achieve a lot of good things by having herd heads, making sure that the collective is healthy. And um, medicine, human medicine is very much about the individual, right? The, the one person getting treatment. Um, um, but the veterinary medicine is much more about sort of this herd health idea. And I, I, I was very um, excited about that because, as I said, there is... Um, you know, this has effects on the environment, this has effects on um, uh, developing countries where having small herds of animals that are really critical for survival, um, if you can affect those, um, affect the heads of a small herd like that, you can have a massive impact, um, good impact on, on human lives. Um, and I think it, it maybe um, qualified me to be in the School of Public Health as well, because in, in contrast to the School of Medicine, the School of Public Health is sort of interested in policies and developments and ideas that affect all of uh, the populations, right? They're not just the not just the individual. Not that it's not really important to focus on the individual who's sick, but but you hope and with research you're hoping to affect a change, right? A change in knowledge and so that you can affect larger change. Um, so if when it, did you decide? When did you decide that you were going to study uh, rather than in a clinical setting, in a laboratory setting, and um, and 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 how did that passion develop? And how do you think yeah. that again makes you uniquely qualified to do the work that you're doing uh, at Hopkins? Yeah, I was thinking the other day that I I was very much um, affected by meeting uh, a person. Um, who later became my PhD mentor, um, Klaus Petzold, and he was a veterinarian and a microbiologist and, and an immunologist um, in a veterinary school. And this was, you know, when immunology wasn't yet its own unique area of research, it was part of microbiology, really. And um, but he was he was a very passionate scientist and in vet school in, in Germany, which is something you do right after high school, you don't first go to college. It's a, it's a, you go straight into a professional school. It's a six and a half year program. Um, we were given a time schedule of about 40 hours a week to be in classes. So it was pretty grueling. And there were no electives except his class. It was a microbiology class. And, and he taught us about just general microbiology. I mean, the, um, some fun things where he had us walk around the classroom, our, our environment with an agar plate in our hand and say, just, just, you know, touch any surface that you are often using. And then we grow it at 37. And then we looked a couple of days later, all this stuff that grew on these agar plates. I still remember that, you know? So anyway, he, um, he attended his, his uh, lecture and I decided that I wanted to work with this guy. So I just sat on the step in front of his office until he came back and asked him whether I could work in his lab. And yeah, the rest is his story. Um, that, that is really cool. So now Matt is really excited to 
talk to you about herd immunity. We want to hold off one more second. Build out, build out your 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 time in Australia because you've been educated in some of the top universities in the U.S., in Australia, and in Germany. And talk to us about about why you decided you wanted to study in Australia and how you think that added to this unique um, background that you're bringing to Hopkins and the research that you're doing with uh, ticks and Lyme disease. Yeah, I'm not sure I can tell you the real reason why I went to Australia. Um, but anyway, we can cut it out of the podcast. <laughs> well, you, can, you can give us a sanitized version. Uh, I didn't want to go to the US because of the political situation at the time. And um, I was actually on the street protesting against the station of uh, nuclear warheads in Germany um, by the US. So I wanted to learn English, but I, I didn't want to go to the US. So I thought it was uh, going to be the UK. And then uh, I got a job offer from Australia and I knew only as Australia that it seemed like the U UK, but better weather. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think that's really cool. I'm glad you said that. That's a cool part of your story. <laughs> what I discovered in Australia was a fantastic research environment. Uh, they are only about 18 or 19 million Australians, but they have a very vibrant research culture. And I ended up studying with some of the best um, immunologists in the world. And um, maybe because Australia is a little isolated and a little far away, they have really developed a really interesting culture and, and um, uh, research culture. And we are look, thinking a little outside the box and thinking a little different maybe is, is not so difficult, right? Because you're not surrounded by sort of all the people that are telling you what you're supposed to think. Yeah. Right. All right. So so Matt Matt does want to jump out of his chair. And I do, Rich. Come on. Let me talk. Myself. All right, Matt, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Professor Bogmart, it's interesting when you bring up this whole background. I mean, first of all, your background with your doctorate in veter veterinary medicine and having a PhD in immunology and having this microbiology you know, interest in school is really unique. And we've never had that on this podcast, as Rich has noted. But another interesting part that's unique to this discussion is your, your statement that in veterinary school, you learn that it's the herd, which is better than the individual. And we hear the, the opposite, quite frankly, Professor Bogmart, when we, when we have doctors on where they say, Lyme disease is all about the individual, because what helps Matt Sabatello get better from Lyme disease may not help Rich Johannesson get better from Lyme disease. So can you expand upon that when you said that that yes. background in veterinary medicine helped you look at Lyme disease from the macro rather than the micro with the herd versus the individual? I'm curious what your yes. thoughts are in that regard compared to other doctors who have been on this podcast and other researchers as well. Well, I think that um, when you have Lyme disease, it's very much, and when you have particular, when you not have, you know, acute, when you have long lasting ongoing symptoms from Lyme disease, it becomes a very personal thing. Everybody, there are commonalities that uh, people share that have, um, that suffer, but they are also very individual um, symptoms and, and, and so on. So I think at that point, it becomes a very personal, individualized medicine thing, which is, not my area of expertise. That is where having a, a doctor that can work with you becomes extremely important, right? But what 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 I'm thinking about is that I want to I want to prevent people from having Lyme disease. I don't want to treat people. I mean, obviously, I want to be able to help people who have Lyme disease, but I also want to make sure that nobody else gets infected, right? And so at that point, it becomes very much a um, 
a sort of herd immunity, a herd thing, right? We need to we need to figure out that there's some really basic things we don't know about um, Lyme disease. What is the most likely area where you acquire a tick bite, right? Um, so there was just this fantastic study um, completed by Rick Ostfeld who went out and collected ticks in the backyards of people who are, um, you know, in areas where a lot of people um, um, get bitten by ticks and get Lyme disease. And he found no correlation between lowering the number of ticks in their backyards and getting Lyme disease, right? And you go like, this is not possible, right? I mean, oh, this is not logical. But I think what it tells us is we don't get bitten in our backyard, right? We get bitten when we, what, when we go out hiking in the woods or something like that, right? We really need to think about this. It's like as a group, as a group of humans, right? Where do we go to that we get infected? And we, we need to understand that better, right? And I think understanding that will prevent um, the diseases that become very personal once once you have, I, I I agree that it is very personal, but I'm not sure that I read the 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 research that you cited the same way. And 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 I'll I'll give you my perspective on it. I mean, I think most people do get bitten in their backyards, and I can tell you that in my life, I've been bitten many 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 times by ticks. I grew up on Long Island, and, and but you're also a tick magnet, Rich. So I'm just I, saying. Well, well that does. <laughs> That does call me the tick magnet, uh, but I've been bitten, uh, Professor, growing up on Long Island uh, almost the entirety of my life. Um, I've been bitten by ticks every year for, for my entire life. And as you can tell, I'm an old man, so there were many tick bites in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in most cases, I was bitten uh, in my yard uh, as a result of a tick, or uh, more importantly, having a companion animal. We had we always had dogs, and to this day, I, I, I have dogs. Uh, generally, it would be, you know, I would, I would have ticks you know, the, I come in contact with ticks yeah. through, through my through my dogs. So I, I do think I do think uh, what's happening. One one way of looking at the 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 findings of the research you just you decided is that by reducing the number of ticks uh, may reduce our exposure, or maybe ticks are so sophisticated it doesn't matter if there are a large number or a small number. They're very effective at biting us and leaving us before we are even aware of them uh, biting us. So I, I, I think that, uh, I think part of what we have to look at is, um, is, uh, is where we're getting bit, uh, but I think, or bitten, but I also think we have to look at, uh, you know, the diversity, which I think is your expert, of immune responses, right? Uh, and one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is, despite having bitten by, been bitten by ticks scores of times in my life, I thankfully have not suffered a chronic illness. Yeah. Matt, by contrast, who is a young man and has certainly not been bitten as many times as I have because he's substantially younger, has suffered. So I, I think we so we see diversity of immune responses not just between species, but we also see it between between uh, the human population, which I think is is an important from a yes. from looking at things from a herd perspective uh, because there is just some people I think are are capable of managing the microbes and we're getting bitten and they're being spit into us and there are other people who are just not as capable of doing that and which then of course leads us to another question that we, we'd love to talk to you about which is um, why why would we launcher um, you know, a lot of them who are suffering from chronic illness today, as opposed to why, uh, you know, people getting bitten by ticks for millions of years, people have been, you know, coming in contact with Lyme disease for millions of years, 
yet you know yet it appears that the that the rate of chronic illness is substantially greater now than it was even in the you know 60s and 70s when I was a child as opposed to what we're seeing now yeah. um, so I, I think there's you know I, I think there's a, a whole bunch of questions that I've thrown at you there and I, I'd love your response yes. to some of that yeah I'm not I'm not sure I understand why the risk of ongoing Lyme disease would go up but what I what I do think is that we have increased exposure um, because we are moving more into areas of sort of tick habitat. I think that's pretty well documented. So I think the risk of exposure has increased. Um, and what we don't, we I don't think we have good enough data to know whether there are more and more ticks carrying these diseases. It would be, I mean, one would think that that is probably the case, but I'm not sure we really have the science, uh, the data to really say that, but that's obviously, um, would also explain, um, and, and, you know, there are always exceptions. There are people that say they got, you know, there are people that smoke their entire lives, live to be 105, don't get lung cancer, right? But we know that there is a correlation between smoking and lung cancer. It's undeniable, right? So this is where the individual um, genetic makeup does come in. But, uh, but I think that there are, about the immune response to infections, what I would say is that they are basic principles that everybody's immune system has to adhere by and will do. And, and then the outcome of that is, of course, a mix of those, uh, the experience one had before, what kind of infections one had before, um, you know, the particular infection one gets, Borrelia is not all the same, right? There are different strains. And, and so that plays a role. Um, uh, what what else is going on in one's life? Is one stressed? Is one relaxed? So, so there's a lot of things that come together while it appears like the disease is very different and, and, and has different outcomes. But I think there are enough commonalities that we can work from to try and understand and develop treatments and, and therapies. So Professor, let's 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 talk about um, how we're defining risk, right? Because here at Tick Boot Camp, we define risk as threat times vulnerability, right? So part of what we've talked about again, and, and I do want to focus on the herd rather than mm -hmm. the individuals, so I, mm -hmm. because I think I think there is much that we can do when we're focusing on the herd. Um, Part of what part of what your 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 questioning is is the threat greater? Meaning, are there more ticks? Yeah. Are we coming in contact with more ticks? Are we coming in contact with ticks that have a greater variety of microbes or a combination of microbes in um, in there? So that that's the that's the threat piece of it. And then of course we have the vulnerability piece to that, which is are we less capable of managing the microbes when they're when we're being bitten by the ticks? And is that because of, as you had pointed out, we, we we're just living in a high stress environment, emotional stress environment, cultural stresses. Um, you know, are are we just are we just harboring, uh, you know, a greater uh, chemical load? Are we harboring a greater microbial load? Are we dealing with issues like mold in 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 ways that we hadn't in the past? I mean, they're just you know. So there is the threat piece. There is this vulnerability piece. But yeah. I think I think um, you know what is clear is that a larger uh, percentage of our herd is being affected. By these, by by both the threat and the vulnerability, and as a result, we have a larger number of people who are suffering 
uh, from the chronic illness. And we do have to, I think, take it apart the way you are. So to see if we can, we can have an impact on the way the herd is being affected by one or all of those elements. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I've seen any data that the that that would explain why we would be more vulnerable. I, I find it easier to, I, I can see that there is a, a greater risk uh, with the emergence of ticks and the, the um, you know, their spread. Increased vulnerability would mean that, um, as you said, I mean, there are sorts of things that we are definitely experiencing, right? We are definitely have um, just air pollution, um, the, the way we live, right? It's going to affect us. Um, um, the way we eat our food, the way we process our food. And, but this is all, you know, this is, this is not, I don't think that there's a, a really good scientific basis on which I can, I can say all of these things, but, you know, in the end, it's about the science and, and what you prove. And when, sure. what I can say is that, um, that, um, The immune system has two functions. Um, it is to um, provide homeostasis. That means that the day-to-day -day organs function normally and all of this goes on. And then on top of that is if you if your immune system is sort of breached, if your barriers are breached, it needs to mount an immune response. And, and um, if there are a lot of stressors, um, you know, again, I think the data are not very good, but that your homeostasis is affected, it will affect also your ability to respond to infection. But I, 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 um, I don't think we have a good handle on the scientific underpinnings of what exactly would affect this immune, immune homeostasis, um, this ensuring that all the organ systems are sort of perfectly functioning, right? So that when we get hit by a pathogen, um, we may not suffer all the consequences that one may, um, if, if one doesn't have that barrier. So uh, another one of the studies that I wanted to put on your radar, walking back to your expertise, or at least you are your, your, um, your undergraduate uh, uh, expertise, um, is, um, is the research that demonstrates that uh, there's a direct correlation between the, uh, the volume of acorns and therefore the number of, of mice that survive during a, a winter period and the amount of Lyme disease or the, or, or the number of Lyme disease infections. So can you break yeah. that down for us uh, as, yeah. as, as, um, as a, a doctor of veterinary medicine and how there is a direct correlation between the number of mice that survive and the volume of Lyme disease infections that uh, uh, human beings will suffer. Yeah, I think um, there's definitely a, a huge impact of climate on um, to be expected on on vector-borne diseases, right? Um, as I said, mice and other rodents are. Um, natural reservoirs of the bacteria that cause Lyme disease. So when you have a larger population of mice, there's a larger chance of ticks um, um, picking up Lyme disease from, from these larger number of mice. Um, so, and um, the, you know, the ticks develop over two years. So they, the, the eggs hatch as nymphs and then the nymphs 
uh, feed on rodents. So if they get infected, they will um, feed again on and develop into nymphs and then the adults. And so when you have larger populations of, of mice, um, you will you may have the same conditions that also allow larger numbers of deer and other um, animals on which adult um, uh, ticks feed. And those are the ticks that we are being bitten by. So clearly there's a, a, a huge impact. The, the problem that we are having is it's not a one species transmission. So this is a zoonosis. This is a disease that moves from animals or a pathogen that moves from animals to humans. Unfortunately, it's not like, okay, let's wipe out every mouse, right? And then maybe we don't have a problem. It's not gonna work this way because um, Borrelia can be infect a, a whole host of different rodents. It can even infect birds. And, and so, so I would say once you can fly, you have a problem, right? You know, that there so so it's too simplistic to think um that we can overcome this problem by just getting rid of a certain species. I would also say that that's not a good idea from, from all the examples we have in history where we are trying to go in there and, and interfere with this sort of natural balance of things. We are going to not only affect the mice, we're going to affect the, the raptor birds that are feeding on these mice, and then we're going to, and they are going to be in the food chain. So we, we don't want to destroy the environment in our quest to sort of, you know, stop the herd from, from getting affected. So the question is, where are the points where we can interfere in an effective way without, you know, without sort of causing more harm uh, than good? So that begs another question, and 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 I have a gazillion questions that you're that you're you're, you're bringing to mind. So, what is your position on some of the research that's being done? And I don't, I don't know that any of it's being done at Hopkins, but there there certainly is there is research at a, a number of universities on the East Coast that are suggesting that we should change the genetic composition of mice so that they will not be affected by uh, by uh, Lyme. What is what is your position on? And I will tell you in advance if you answer the question. That really makes me uncomfortable on yes. a number of different levels, and 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 it makes me uncomfortable because I I think it's always a mistake when we're editing genes of wild animals because we don't know what the impact you know the downstream impact is going to be. But I, I'd love your response. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that's uh, it, I again if. Mice were the only hosts of Borreobuchdorferia, of the only small rodent that a tick will attach to. Then maybe I would feel a little different about it. I would still be really worried, but I would. But what all this is going to do? It's going to move the, the the natural reservoir species to be something else. I mean, I there is no way that we can immunize my mice, immunize, change them, do whatever you like. Um, and I think immunizing them would be a much more straightforward way to go than trying to introduce some genetic um, deficit in these mice or, or duration. Um, and think that we can overcome the threat of tick-borne diseases uh, by doing that. I just, I just don't see, I have not seen anybody who can, that might be different, you know, if, you, if you're talking about Martha's Vineyard or something, where there is like only one type of rodent out there, or, you know, I, I mean, 
go and collect them. For, you know, I mean, I, I don't know why you need to do something so complicated to, to affect um, that. Yeah, no, I, I'm not a fan of the idea. I also think it's, I, I just find that would be the last thing I would try. I mean, not the first thing. I so, don't know. So Give us a little more help with the the wild rodent population, right? Because I, I read I read uh, recently, and and I'd, I'd like you to help me out to tell me if this is correct or not. That one in every four uh, animals is 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 a rodent. That the rodent population is huge, and we as humans are not aware of it because most of the rodent population is nocturnal, so we don't see a lot of them. But it really is a huge, huge population. And if we were going to try to Go through a process of either immunizing, you know, the 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 rodents, and there is some some talk about them doing that yes. through uh, different mm -hmm. uh, feeding programs, yes. or we were going to genetically alter the animals and then release them so that they would repopulate as, I guess, a different species of animal. That it that it's unlikely to be able to do that because the population is just a huge population, and 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 it's unlikely to be effective. I, I would concur with that. I, I think that they are, I don't know that number that you mentioned is impressive. I, I hadn't seen that, but but um, certainly are many different species we're not aware of. There are different kinds of mice, you know, they're not interbreeding. Um, so they are um, in different um, parts of the natural habitat. There will be a species that is adapted to that habitat. You know, you may change that, but you're not going to affect it overall. Um, we, we have to stop thinking about this is this is not this is not um, a disease where there's one host and and one way of transmission and if we could just stop that we could stop the whole thing it's 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 just not like that so um you can do it in your backyard right you can mow your lawn down to a little stop and you can <laughs> you know maybe put a little moat around your house but you you cannot affect this at a at a larger scale so let, let's walk back now to your expertise because matt is really excited to talk about uh immunity with you and and we'd really like to talk about about uh, mouse immunity versus human immunity and what what you what you what you first have studied and and have developed an expertise in relating to mice immunity and let's talk about how that gives us some insight into human immunity right so we we you did you did begin to tease early on in the in the conversation um, that that mice um, seem to have developed a um, I don't know a relationship with Lyme disease where um, where mice become a reservoir for the the bacteria yet the mice do not become ill from the bacteria so talk to us about you know what how the the mouse immune system works how it's similar and different to to the uh human immune system and why the why the bacteria appears to have the symbiotic relationship with the rodent population in a way that it doesn't with us yes well the first thing i want to say is that um Mice have been used for at least since the 1930s to study immunity um, of humans um, because empirically first, and now we have sort of genetics of it, um, actually our immune system and that of mice is amazingly similar. That doesn't mean it's the same, um, but we can learn a lot about 
the immune system of humans by studying mice. And that's uh, and on top of that, we have the ability, as, as you mentioned before, to easily genetically manipulate mice. So we have the tools to do that. Um, and, you know, for all sorts of other reasons, mice are just a, a, a very good um, animal population uh, to, to conduct uh, research on and learn something about the immune um, system. So, so that's the first thing I would say. Yes, mouse and humans don't have the same immune system, but there are many more things we have in common than, than they are separate. And so what we are studying, um, we feel uh, we are looking in mice um, because it's to do mechanistic studies to really get an understanding of why something is happening. Um, it's incredibly difficult to do that um, with human um, uh, tissue samples alone. And there are some increasingly fantastic ways that we can look deeper and deeper into the human immune response. And that's fantastic, but I don't think it will ever replace us um, uh, doing a more experimental approach uh, with mice. Um, so the, I'm not even sure that mice um, are necessarily completely different from all humans in terms of how they respond to Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, what we have seen in Europe is that um, where they have taken serum samples, random serum samples um, from uh, people with no history of, of Lyme disease. And what is very clear from those very large serum uh, sample studies is that as you get older, your chances of having antibodies to um, the bacteria causing Lyme disease increase. And, um, and, and this is in people that have no history of any clinical signs and symptoms of Lyme disease. So what this to, means to me is that there is a subset of the human population. I don't know whether it's a tiny subset or whether it's the majority of humans um, that actually behaves more like mice than like patients. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Than like patients we know that suffer from Lyme disease. And so... Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, that's not a good, I mean, that's not necessarily a good thing because it could also mean theoretically, although I'm worried to say that out loud, is that theoretically it's possible that we have humans running around persistently infected with Borreoboctophora right? who don't know it and who don't care because they are not sick, right? Um, so, so, so we don't know the answer to that. And I think we should know the answer to that, right? I mean, uh, what is the... How often does when somebody really is exposed to the Lyme disease agent, how often does this person develop clinical symptoms of Lyme disease? That would be a, such an important question to, to know the answer to, right? Um, and then for, um, and so, so I think those are really important things. But what our, the focus of my lab has been, um, is to understand the immune response of mice to Borreoboctophora because the critical point here is that the mice cannot clear the infection. And, and, and overall, that's not a good thing, right? Even if you're not suffering from a disease, 
um, there are other chronic infections many humans have that we know have subtle effects. Um, you know, there are studies that infection with um, CMV, which is a certain virus that 60 to 70% of the human population has, you don't usually have any symptoms with it. That's um, cytomegalovirus, right? Yes, cytomegalovirus. That um, studies have shown that people have that on average have a two-year less lifespan, have a lifespan that's about two years um, uh, shorter than that. So, you know, so I don't really think that we should advocate for persistent infections of all sorts of things, right? And that if we, most of humans have persistent Borrelia burgdorferi infection, everything would be fine. In contrast, what I'm trying to what I, what I try to understand uh, with the research we are doing is, why is that? Why can you clear influenza? Most people, um, uh, the COVID virus, um, salmonella infection, you know, um, uh, there's so many infections, all of the common cold infection, all of the childhood diseases. Most of us, we get them, we get over them, we clear the infection. Why can we not clear Borreliosis infection, right? And um, and I think that's really important to study that in mice because it's a natural reservoir host. This is what evolution did to us, right? They created these mice so that they can harbor this Borrelia burgdorferi. So, so if we understand that, we might be able to identify the critical parts of the immune system that we need to be to have activated in order to clear the infection. Um, and if we can if we can identify what critical parts of the immune system may not work good in mice and may not work good in humans, um, we can devise therapies that do not rely on antibiotics, um, but rely on a mobilization of your immune system to clear the infection, maybe together with antibiotics, right? Which would be, I think, a much more, a much stronger, we have a much better chance of actually healing after the infection, because as I said a while ago, the immune system has to function and has to maintain homeostasis. Every organ system has to function normal and it has to respond to the insult, right? When we get infected uh, with Borreliosis, maybe that setting, that immune homeostasis is no longer where it was before we got infected. Um, yes, so so that's really the research question we're trying to answer. So I think, and I kind of like this, because now I'm going to say that Rich has the immune system of a mouse, right? Because he has a lot of disease, I'm sure, but he's just he's just managing it, never was symptomatic. But I think I think your point with like cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus and all these things we hear about that are viruses or things that we just harbor in our bodies that we acquire throughout our lifetime and don't necessarily make us sick, maybe take years of our lives, right? At the end of our lives, when we become immune compromised, yep. they then can pop up and, and make us sick. I still think just because mice aren't symptomatic clinically to Lyme disease doesn't mean it's not having a negative impact on them overall, right? Yes. In their life cycle. And just because uh, Rich, if he has Lyme disease, doesn't mean it's not it's, it's not impacting him now. It doesn't mean that at some point in his life, it won't have an impact on his health, right? Which okay. is why I think these preventative measures, like maybe herbals, that until we can find a better solution, like you're saying, to have you know an immune therapy to fully eradicate the bacteria since we don't have that, there are alternatives we can use, whether it's pharmaceutical or alternatives, depending on where we're at to address that. But I think it's, I think in my 
opinion, at least, it's sort of risky to just roll the dice and say, I could be harboring Lyme disease and I'm infected and I'm chronically infected, but I'm not symptomatic. So I'm not going to worry about it. So, uh, and I think that's exactly why you're doing what you're doing, right? So that's a really cool way to think about it. But when it comes to the immune system, you know, you, you your biggest study is that you, you're studying the immunological mechanisms that regulate and control immunity to pathogens like Lyme and influenza. But the word to me, I just kind of, you know, before I get into the deeper questions, the yeah. word, the word immunity to mean, to me, means I come into contact with something, my body mounts an immune response. And because of that, it has this sort of memory in my immune system. So if I come into contact with that pathogen again, I will not get sick because my antibodies mounted by my immune system have eradicated that in the past and therefore I won't become sick from it again. Is that accurate before we go on with the conversation? Yeah, if you say you're immune, that 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 would be exactly what you just outlined, right? You you have it's an acquired um ability to repel the pathogen before it can cause harm. Yeah. So, do you believe that any human being today can be immune to Lyme disease? Because it sounds like if somebody gets infected with Lyme, they can get reinfected with the same strain later on in life. And if it's persistent chronic infection with no symptoms, it's still a persistent chronic infection. So is there any any immunological, you know, out of the box, right? Natural right. Im- immunity right. that we can generate to Lyme disease or, or co-infections that we can so, get from a tick bite? I actually believe that a vaccine um, uh, to, to Lyme disease would would be a good thing. I mean, I think I I believe that this is definitely what you should go after because from everything we have done, there's no reason to believe that we couldn't um, give a prophylactic, induce an immune response, and have a good immune response develop because the um, so we can be immune. But I'm not sure how good the immunity, the natural immunity to an infection is. So, so um, like with measles virus, if we get measles virus, right? Or if we get infected with measles virus and we overcome the infection, we have lifelong immunity. I don't think that happens would happen with Borrelia infection uh, because of its evolutionary need to be a persistent infector, right? Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't develop a vaccine um, that gives you the immunity that you need to have in order to prevent the pathogen from entering. The problem is once you have the effect infection, right? Um, then I think your immune system has a problem because of all the evolutionary adaptation this pathogen has undergone to try and establish persistence and all the things it has done that it can do to manipulate, in my view, the immune system. Right. And, and I guess what I'm thinking, though, Professor Baumgart, is if we're naturally infected with Lyme disease and our immune system can't get rid of it and it's a persistent infection, yes. how will an artificial invocation of our immune system be any better than a natural exposure? If our natural exposure can't get rid of it with our immune system, how can our yeah. immune system get rid of it with, uh, with an artificial invocation right. or misunderstanding that possibly? Yes, no, very, very good question. Um, so when we when we found that everything we did, uh, what the mouse did in immune response to the pathogen was weird, right? Um, uh, we also found that if we took dead Borrelia, so the bugs, we killed them, and we injected them into mice, they mounted a perfectly normal immune response to that bug. So what that told us is the bug needs to be alive. The bug needs to be in the body alive in order to mess with, with your immune system. 
if it's dead, it's not a problem for you, right? So that's why I'm so excited about prophylactic because I think it can work. I, I really do. I don't think that um, the, the question is, you know, what the, or the usual question about a vaccine, right? Which are the best antigens and, you know, all of that, how much of it you give and how often, but, but I think it's a problem we can overcome. So you believe, Professor, that if we use a vaccine that doesn't put a live bacterial infection into somebody, but maybe some, you know, would simulate something like a like a, a dead bacteria, that that could be effective in mounting an appropriate immune response without having, you know, the person become persistently infected if they then get a tick bite later on in life. Correct. Okay. Yep. So naturally, we cannot become immune to Lyme disease, but through a potential vaccine, you think we can, correct? Yes. Okay. And, wow. Yeah. So I never even thought about it that way. That's really, really fascinating. So let's talk about the immune response. And, you know, you obviously when our immune systems can mount a successful response to something like influenza and we get, and that's like the flu, right? Influenza is the flu. Yeah. So we get sick with the flu all the time. You know, after a few weeks, we get better and we move on with our lives. Why is the flu so different than Lyme disease? Because what's really happening when we mount that immune response? You know, you talk about, you do all this research with B cells and T cells. Can you get more into the weeds and explain to us the mechanical differences between an immune response of influenza versus an immune response to Lyme, how they're different and how the immune system reacts? Yes. Yeah, if I could start with the, with the B cell response, which is what we have been studying the most. When you get infected with flu, which I call a hit and run virus, it enters your body, it goes in, it's a little bit silent for a little while, why it replicates, why it multiplies, and then it bursts on the scene, you feel sick, but by that time you've already sneezed and you're already affecting the next person. The virus doesn't really care what you do with your immune response. You will now mount a beautiful immune response to this particular virus and you will develop um, antibodies, which are these uh, proteins that can stick to the virus particles and that can prevent that virus then from entering another cell. Very effective way to inactivate the virus. Um, you and, and the cells that are making that um, these antibodies, some of them were developed to be um, migrating to your bone marrow from your lungs, from the local site where you get an infection into your bone marrow. And they will sit there and secrete antibodies for a number of years. So you will develop these, um, you, you will establish an immune barrier, these antibodies, so um, that if that same virus came next time around, you now have these antibodies and they will latch onto the virus and prevent the virus from ever getting into your body. So that's really great, but flu doesn't care. Why flu doesn't flu care? Because next time it comes around, it has mutated in a way that those antibodies don't work anymore, right? So, so we are constantly making antibodies to, um, to the virus. So, and the virus has no interest in killing us, right? So we make antibodies, we kill the remaining viruses that haven't infected somebody else. But the virus has gotten what it wanted, which is to move from one patient, from one individual to the next, right? So that's a hit and run strategy where you don't have to do a lot to the immune system, right? Um, so the virus inhibits a little bit some cytokines that per, that um, make cells more um, more difficult to infect, right? So, but that's about all it does, right? So, so but then comes Borrelia the It's a large bacteria, and um, it, it cannot do that, right? It can't. It, it replicates much slower than a virus. It doesn't. It doesn't mutate like 
like um, a virus does, right? It doesn't, that's not what it does. So it also requires this tick, right? So it needs to go into a tick. It must not be eliminated by the immune system of the tick. And then when the, the tick attaches to a host, it needs to realize that the tick is not attached to a host. The bug has to climb out of the tick into the mammalian host, right? And so now it's now it's um, infecting it, and the immune system now needs to see it. Now the bug is an extracellular pathogen. It's not a virus. The virus is inside the cell. These bacteria are actually outside the human cells, right? They are in the tissue. They're lung collagenous. Um, they're um, outside the tissue. They're sitting within your various organs. So you, what should happen? What should happen is that you have certain cell populations specialized that should come in and basically eat up the pathogen. Um, they're called macrophages, they're called uh, uh, neutrophils. They should come in, they should basically attack this pathogen and get rid of it. That's your first order of defense, but it doesn't seem to happen that way. There doesn't seem to be this massive influx of these cell populations trying to get rid of Borea. Why is that? Is that the immune component you're saying that if we can find the key to fix the, the lack of an immune response, we can overcome Lyme? I think that's what I you're saying earlier, correct? One. I think okay. that's one, but I don't think it's the only one. But it it's one, uh, it's not what we are studying in my lab per se, but we are very surprised, we're very interested in that. Why isn't there this immediate early emergency response. You know, why don't these cells all come and attack this uh, pathogen? Somehow it doesn't happen in the way it, it happens to, to other infections. And then um, what happens also, and this is, um, is that um, in mice, uh, these Borrelia, you know, for a long time, it was thought that the Borrelia would sort of hide from the immune system, right? They're going to keep quiet, and so the immune system doesn't really see it. And the immune system doesn't really work that way. I mean, every organ in your body has immune cells, you know? I mean, the immune system is pretty, you know, as, as police goes, it's pretty pretty much everywhere, right? So um, Borrelia actually um, migrates into uh, lymph nodes. Those are the structures in your body that make immune responses. This is where the action happens. This is where immune responses are induced. And what we had shown in mice is that um, in response to that, uh, the whole lymph node disintegrates. It becomes, it's no longer this very organized tissues where you have your immune cells separated in a way that allows them to interact. And and, and so we think that that might um, inhibit certain parts of the immune response. So, so, mm -hmm. Professor, can I ask you to pause there for a second? Yes. Uh, you, you've talked about this weird response that we yes. have to, to the Borrelia. You see that in both mice and you're seeing that in humans. Um, do you believe that the properties of the tick spit, in particular the proteins on the tick spit, may be the reason why the uh why the human immune system is not responding to the uh the bacteria in the same way that you would expect it to if it were um if it were not for a weird response yeah i think that's part of it i think that um there's some uh, nice research showing that there are some proteins in the saliva of ticks and uh that can really inhibit and um um in, uh, inhibit 
also, um, you know, the tick needs it to inhibit coagulation, so it can actually um, feed from from the blood, right? And uh, but there seems to be some coevolution that it's also good for the pathogens that are being transmitted that there is some inhibition. I don't think it's the only thing, though. I don't think that that alone can explain it because we can transmit bacteria through other means that don't and other than ticks, and um, we see the same. We we see a similar response. So one of the things we learned, I think, from was from Professor Shapi when we interviewed her, that before the uh, the Borrelia will leave the tick gut and come into uh, the the host, that there is an exchange of blood, and and there are proteins from the blood that the Borrelia ultimately, I don't know if it cloaks itself in or absorbs or uh, shapes, reshapes it. Uh, and, and I'm just wondering if, if that is another element of why the immune system is not responding to it, because perhaps it's recognizing it as its own blood. And as a result of that, perhaps that's why it's not responding. The immune system is not responding aggressively to the Borrelia. Yeah, I, I I hadn't heard of that particular aspect of the blood, so I don't know. I don't. I find it hard to believe that uh, a pathogen can completely cloak itself into self and it just. But I think part of that is it, it's probably also one thing it does. But one thing it's not going to be enough. Again, you know, there are too many borea specific parts it cannot get rid of because it needs to live and it needs to be borea. So. Um, but I think what you just described, namely that the blood comes into the tick, you know, that is, of course, how the vaccine that is currently being tested and was actually um, done 20 odd years ago um, is trying to achieve is that the blood contains antibodies that can bind to the borea while it's still in the tick. Um, and, and, and that has been shown to work quite effectively. Um, so, so if that can be happening with an antibody, I'm sure it can happen with other proteins in the blood. So, yeah. so one other piece that I that I wanted to share with you uh, because I know Matt is very anxious to continue. Uh, we didn't finish our chat yet, Rich. We still have several steps to go over. I, I understand. <laughs> so let, 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 there's one more one more question I want to ask you about this piece. One, one of the other things that we learned from Professor Shapi is that um, is that uh, the Borrelia is very effective at colonizing with other. Uh, other uh, microbes, and they, and generally that's being that's uh, taking place within, um, you know, with within the um, what is it, Matt? The biofilm. Biofilm. Thank you. Uh, that that you know. I think it's lime right there, Rich. I don't know. Thank you. And and there is there there is this exchange of proteins in the in the uh, in the biofilm where you know the 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 Borrelia itself is literally changing while it's in the body. I'm wondering what your reaction is to uh, whether or not that is an important element of why the immune system is not responding. Or again, is it a combination of all of these different elements? Because really it seems to be very good at developing uh, uh, you know, relationships with with the mice, mouse immune system, with other microbes, with you know, with, you know, the with, tick with, got with ticks ticks. saliva. Yeah, I mean, you yes. know, with, there's just so many different elements that it's that it's a that it's a it's a pretty sophisticated bacteria, and it's very good at developing symbiotic relationships with a number of different um, you know elements in nature. Yeah, I mean, you know, as as horrid as it is to have 
uh, Lyme disease. Uh, it, it is quite an impressive pathogen, what one has to say. And I, I think the, the important point you just mentioned is that it's incredibly good at adapting to whatever the environment is. And if you think about it, it has to survive in a tick and it has to survive in a mammalian host. One is at 37 degrees, the tick is at whatever the temperature of the tick is, right? I mean, which is the environment. So so just alone that, you know, I mean, if you think about your body, if you're not at 37 degrees Celsius, right, which is sort of our normal temperature, you warm us up to 42, which is about when we start dying, you know, so that's five degrees. This bug can live in minus whatever can at least survive uh, up to uh, body temperature, you know, so, so that is um, why it is, um, it has, these, it, it could establish this really complex life cycle, but it requires it to adapt. And, and I think what it also means is that it's constantly changing, right? And I think that is another aspect of it that is not good for an immune system, right? If things keep changing, you want to make certain specific immune responses to things that are always there and that's what our immune system is geared to do um yeah when when you said that earlier the we were talking about influenza and influenza will infect us we, you know it's, it, we respond with an immune response we get yeah. rid of it it comes back and it's different it's it's evolved yeah. and then we address yes. it again and it's cyclical we yes. can get sick with influenza multiple times throughout our life mm -hmm. it sounds like the lyme disease is evolving as well except our body can't get rid of it and eradicate it like a kind of influenza. Is that correct? Yes, I think that that is true. I think that, that and, and you know, this is, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, about this idea of, I think we have gotten, the, we, the immune system, <laughs> um, we've sort of learned how to deal with these pathogens that keep changing. You know, we, we, um, uh, as we have experienced over the last few years, right? Um, we have seemed to have gotten as a herd, that doesn't, not the individual necessarily, but as a herd, we have learned to live with this new coronavirus, right? It keeps changing. And yes, some of us keep getting sick, but a lot of us are exposed and we're not, right? And so, and and the way the 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 immune system, in particular the antibodies, uh, the production of antibodies, the B cell response that makes these antibodies, seem to be um, what it seems to be doing is that it's learning not just being very specific to to very particular parts of it, but also about sort of remembering. Oh, I've seen this three times now, right? This particular part of this pathogen I've seen multiple times, so it's a good idea to have a long-lasting response to this particular part of the pathogen. Um, but what we have learned over the last few years is if you make a really good antibody response to a particular part of the um, of a bug and the the bug changes mutates you tend to be still making a lot of your antibodies to this part that doesn't change right and it and what that means is that often you still get infected but you don't die of the infection because you have this immune response that keeps you alive. Um, and so now you have a chronic infection, as you say, and the bug changes. I have no doubt, although I have no data, but I'm working on that, um, 
that the bug changes in the mouse, in a human, as it infects it. I'm not even sure that the bug, if it sits in your skin versus it sits in a different part of your body, that, that they look the same. I actually think they may not look the same. Um, that I don't know that the immune system is able to really clear the infection with something that is uh, might be undergoing these, these changes. So I think one part of the reason why it's so hard for the immune system to eliminate this pathogen is that parts of it change. What I don't understand frankly, really don't understand, is why aren't there enough of these parts of the Borea that need to stay the same because it still needs to live and it needs to do all these things? Why over time don't we develop the antibodies that allow us to get rid of this pathogen? Because there are all these parts that cannot change, right? Um, Right. And I think that's partly because to your point, there are so many different ways it can survive in your body from a spiroketal form to a cyst form to a cell deficient form. It could be depending on where it is in your body, the various strains. We have Borrelia burgdorferi, we have Miyamotai, and that's just Borrelia, never mind co-infections that can compound the problem when we get multiple pathogens infecting us from a tick bites. I think there's so many levels of complexity there, but I want to circle back to, you were, you were talking about, you know, the, the weirdness of, yes. of Lyme disease, right? So right up the bat, it gets into our blood and it's outside of our cells and our body, our immune system should mount a response. These macrophages should come out and they should eat up and gobble up the infection and we should be a-okay. That doesn't happen, right? This, and then it sounds like the second piece was then beyond that, the Lyme disease infects our lymph and it almost disintegrates our lymph, which is a, a critical piece of our immune system that it mounts an immune response. Is that correct? Is that, or did I misunderstand? Yeah, that the, lymph, the lymph tissue. So there's lymph, which is the fluid that, um, and that's sort of the tissue fluid. Uh, but then there are the, the lymph nodes, uh, which are, is the tissue where the immune, where the cells are coming in to experience all that antigen or those pathogens that are coming through the lymph, through the tissue fluid into, into that, um, which is basically a huge filter where the immune cells sit and usually start recognizing these antigens and then start making an immune response to. And, and so, yeah, so, at that part, what we have found is that usually you will develop structures that are called germinal centers that will reside in these cells I talked about, these long-lived plasma cells that migrate to the bone marrow and make antibodies for a very long time. Um, and they will make uh, what we call memory cells, cells that they are not actively making antibodies, um, but they are actually circulating in your blood and they will rapidly respond if they see an antigen again, a pathogen again. And what we have found is that the structures, the that immune response doesn't seem to happen in these animals. It, or it begins to happen, it forms, but we don't think it's ever functional because we do not have evidence that these long-lived plasma cells and memory B cells develop after an infection of mice. So if we then treat the mouse with a very aggressive antibiotic and get rid of it for everything that we can find, um, the antibodies go away. And so uh, and an antibody, when it circulates, has a half-life of about 30 days. So if we wait um, five months, we can reinfect the mouse, right? There's no, doesn't have a memory response. It can be reinfected. It doesn't have the antibodies, right? Um, that would, we don't understand why, correct? So these memory cells that we see with other infections 
are not happening with Lyme disease, which means we can get reinfected within a few months, it sounds like, right? And we're yes. not sure why that mechanism and is happening. The mice, I can say it's a few months. I don't know in, in, in uh, infections. Uh, you don't want to do the experiment because you want to. Um, yeah, so um, we know that these germinal centers collapse in mice. Uh, I'd love to do that in humans. Unfortunately, it's within a tissue, so it's hard to get samples for, for that, you know, but but Clinically, what we see is when you treat humans with antibiotics, many of them become seronegative, meaning many of them lose the antibodies that, um, that can bind to Borrelia. And what that means is they can get reinfected, right? I mean, so that's, I think, and what it means to me is that they don't have these long-lived plasma cells that are sitting in the bone marrow that should be there and should be making protective antibodies for a few years. And that's a connection I should have put together a long time ago. And maybe I'm wrong, but I want to point something out here. So like when I, I had a ton of blood work done and I came back with a hepatitis antibody and I remember thinking, oh no, what does that mean? And it's like, no, 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 you got a hepatitis vaccine when you were a kid and you're going to have that antibody because you were vaccinated as a child, right? Yes. But when these Lyme tests are done, they're antibody tests. These, the, the typical Western blots and the Elises are Western, are, are antibody tests and when you're coming up negative, that means there's no antibody response, which is in, you know indirectly saying you don't have an infection because your immune system is not mounting an antibody response. But what I never thought about was it so quickly dissipates, right? So yep. you get infected, yes. you get tested, you have antibodies, you test yep. again a few months later, you don't have antibodies and we assume the infection is gone, which it may or may not be, right? It could still be there. Maybe we're not mounting an immune response, but regardless, our immune system stopped responding to the pathogen and we are no longer protected or immune to that infection, right? Yes. That is that is I that's why I got so excited about this because and that's why we're trying to figure out what it is that makes this germinal center response, this response that should give us this long-lasting immunity. Why is this not um why is this not establishing? You know, and so we have we have some results that we are hoping um, um you know get us on the right path, but that is critical, right? I mean, because because if you um, if you are the lucky ninety percent whatever of humans that get infected and then get antibiotic and is and and then it's okay, you want to know that you don't have to go through the same thing over again next year, right? Um, so so um, one part of having a better um, public health is to develop a good immune response if you were unlucky enough to be infected, right? I mean, prevent yeah. being infected. And if you are infected, you want to have a good immune response so that at least you get something for having been infected, right? I mean, yeah. but, doesn't this beg the question about whether or not a uh, vaccine would be effective? If, 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 we, lose the, if we lose the memory um, shortly after we have an immune response, it's almost like uh, I feel like uh, yeah, I'm watching Men in Black, where they pull out that little black thing, and, <laughs> and all of a sudden your your memory is erased. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I'm just I'm wondering yeah, whether we, that, yeah. Know, so so actually, we want to do those experiments. We haven't done those experiments. I I don't think. So what you're saying is, once you get infected with Borrelia, you lose all the memory you have. That's not what we found. We haven't looked at it that way. What we can say is, if you're a mouse, you get infected with Borrelia, you will never make memory. You will not make memory, okay? So whether you will erase the memory you have to yourself or, you know, to the bug um, or to something else, we haven't tested that. Um, so it is for us at the... Uh, so, and that's why I said before, 
a vaccine should work because a vaccine will make you have the antibodies before you get infected, make you have the memory cells and the long-lasting plasma cells before you get infected, right? So you will not get infected. So you will not, um, you will not rely on the infection-induced immune response. You're relying on the response you induce to a vaccine, right? And I, I don't yeah. have matter to say that that shouldn't work, but your your question about would it erase memory? I, I think we need to test it. I, nobody has tested it, but but I, I well, we can have a little bet. But I, I think this is like three D chess. We're talking three D chess here, right? I mean, yes. you're saying so to Richard. So to Richard's point is right now we're not even mounting a memory response with natural infection, but with yeah. the vaccine because it's not a live infection we see in the mouse model that we can mount a memory response. But if that does happen in the human model, will that memory response dissipate over time is the question we're saying, right? Yes. Okay. So, so, yeah. so Matt, can we also now talk about antibiotics and the impact that antibiotics are having on the immune response? And is it possible that antibiotics are actually enhancing or speeding up the, you know, the loss of memory that would come from the, uh, from the live infection? Um, I think antibiotics in general are not a good thing, <laughs> but they have, I mean, gazillion people have survived because they have taken antibiotics, right? So they have changed the face of medicine, I think, antibiotics and and um, ha have done wonders for many, many infections. So, however, when you what we now understand is when you take antibiotics, you also get rid of all the good bugs that are within you and on you. And I think we've become more aware that that has impacts on your health. Um, yeah, so certainly- wave out. Yeah. I'm sorry, with the broad spectrum antibiotics, that's certainly the case, right? You're just killing yeah. everything. It's just going in and, 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 and killing everything. But I, I'm specifically asking you to focus on the impact that uh, using antibiotics as a, as, as a therapeutic response to Lyme disease may have on the long-term impact of, of, of our immune response to future infections? Um, well, I, I think it's, we cannot not use antibiotics as fast as we possibly get diagnosed. So th that is really important, right? And at and the acute so phase, yeah. You you have to get treated as soon as you possibly can. So so if you were to not get antibiotics, would you mount a bigger antibody response? Would you mount a bigger immune response? Probably. But we know that immune response is not effective. So mounting it is not a good thing. You know, I mean it's not it may not be a bad thing, but it's not helping you, right? So so I don't know how to answer your question because of that, you know. Yeah, but in some cases, the way people treat is that they try to enhance their immune uh, response. So, for example, some people take astragalus as a response to uh, to assisting their immune system with mounting response to uh, to uh, Borrelia infection. Some folks are are just prophylactically using herbals. So, for example, one of the things that you and Matt had talked about earlier is. You know, there are folks who are walking around with Borrelia, but they're not, they're not uh, demonstrating, uh, you know, an infection, so they shouldn't be worried about it. And I can tell you as someone who has been bitten by ticks many times, who believes that he is harboring the infection, uh, I mean, harboring the, the microbes, but I am taking an herbal protocol 
the same herbal protocol that people who have Lyme disease take. I just have, I'm taking half of the herbal protocol. So I've treated both with astragalus that, that is, is purported to have uh, uh, enhanced the immune response. And, I, and, and I'm treating prophylactically with, with a uh, Lyme disease herbal protocol from, uh, from the vital plan, Dr. Rawls's plan, so that my body can continue to manage this despite never having been symptomatic. So yeah. I, I think there are a number of different approaches we could take. One is that we're going to kill it. The other is that we can enhance our immune system. And, and what, what I'm a little anxious about in having this conversation with you is I'm wondering whether or not enhancing the immune response is something that would be effective at all. I, I think enhancing the immune response to the point where it can overcome infection, it seems to be epidemiologically possible because there are many humans walking around with antibodies to Borrelia that have no symptoms, that have no, no remembering that they ever had an infection, right? Which suggests to me, uh, one of two things, right? Either they're chronically infected and making a, a good immune response and controlling the infection, or they got the infection. Uh, they actually mounted a very strong and, uh, response uh, and now making lifelong antibodies to something that they experienced a few years ago. Both is possible, right? I mean, we don't have data to say one way or the other. Um, well, I, yeah. you, I'm sorry, Professor. My thought on that is that recent study that said 15% approximately of the world population has antibodies to Lyme. I always interpret that as they have they have an infection, but I think you brought up a good point. That doesn't mean they have an infection. It could mean that they had a robust immune re response. They've eradicated it potentially, but they just have a long-term immune response and therefore right. they're testing positive for those antibodies. Or it could mean that they have a persistent existing infection that they're just managing rather than having it been eradicated. We don't really know enough yet to make that determination you're saying, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a very important distinction to make, right? Because in one case, what it would mean is that there are some humans around that actually their body knows how to um, get rid of it, eradicate of it, uh, which would be very exciting, right? I mean, if if that would be the, if if that's the case, so, so I think that, and yeah, so I think that that's definitely, and that's not what the mouse would be a terrible model for that, right? Because evolutionarily. The mouse and other rodents have been identified by Borea to establish persistent infection. So is that the difference between the mouse and the humans? I don't know. Yeah, and I want to make a counter-argument to Rich's, you know, angst over, you know, enhancing the immune system either herbally or, or in, up with other means, because I, Lyme will, over time, weaken your immune system as it burdens your body if you are chronically ill with it and you are symptomatic. And if it weakens your immune system, then other things that we all have, like you said, there's so many things that we just harbor and manage, they're going to come out to play as well. So I think enhancing our immune system, even if it doesn't do anything to help the Lyme, because the Lyme is too smart to even be addressed by the immune response, everything else we have in our body that can be addressed by the immune response will be either eradicated or lessened in our bodies, which will allow us to live a healthier, less symptomatic life. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Professor? Is that an accurate no, response? I 100% I, I agree with that. Um, I think that everything you can do to, to be healthy overall, to the best of your abilities, uh, is a good thing for the immune system. Um, eating good foods, you know, a, a varied diet, all of this is good for the immune system. Um, so, and that will help you, it will help you feel better, I have no doubt about it. As I said, part of the immune system is, is not just fighting that, that pathogen coming in, but it's also 
um, you know, the cells that I described that are coming in that should be attacking the pathogen, they are also there to keep, to gobble up your dead and dying cells. You have lots and lots of cells in your body that die every day. You don't want them lying about so you can make an autoimmune response. You, They need to be cleared up. So that's what your immune system is there for. It's sort of the housekeeper as well, right? And so the better that is functioning, the less chances you have of, of uh, not being ready for the next infection. So, so Matt, let me make another argument. And and even if the even if the immune system cannot be enhanced to clear out Borrelia, and and, and, I, and I think it can, by the way, but even if it can't, yeah. I think it does make sense to manage the rest of your microbial load because it, it appears to me that what Borrelia is really good at doing is teaming up with other microbes and then boiling over, right? We, we have this whole conversation about the pot boiling over and, and, it, and it's sort of your total microbial load. So even if you couldn't enhance your immune system to 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 manage the Borrelia, if you could if you can enhance your immune system to manage all of the rest of your microbial load, and of course deal with toxicity by by eating up the the, the dead cells, then it's more likely that your body will not uh, suffer from the pot boiling over, and then of course the Borrelia destroying your your, your immune system. One of the the major things the, your immune system is doing every minute of every day, every second of every day is interacting with the microbiota in your gut. Um, and so if, if, and, and um, if that is out of whack, right, um, you, you will not feel super healthy. Um, so yes, absolutely. And, and I totally agree with you that, that um, uh, Borea probably interacts with the microbiota because it relies a lot on the host for, its nutrients. And so uh, a lot of the nutrients we have, we have because our, our gut bacteria are generating them and we are absorbing them, right? So there's the connection there for sure. Yeah, I'd like to jump into, because you talked about if we have congested cellular space and we have dead cells that aren't being eaten up by these macrophages because we're immune compromised, that can lead to autoimmunity. And we see autoimmune diseases being super common in the chronic Lyme community for the people that are symptomatic and then continue to get worse with Lyme disease. Do you think that Lyme is triggering autoimmunity? And many of us, like myself, we have genetic predispositions to autoimmunity and then get really sick with Lyme disease. So is that just an increased risk factor for chronic Lyme if you have a genetic predisposition? Or do you think that Lyme's actually causing the autoimmune response as well? And it's really both, both yeah. sides of the coin. Yeah, I, I don't... I. I don't know. I have a really good answer to it, but I, I definitely believe that uh, I, 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 we have some data to 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 clearly show that if you that you can that parts of the immune system are like in a way that would support this idea that that could trigger autoimmunity if you have susceptibility. So one of the things I'm thinking about is we found. Um, that uh, mice that are infected with Borrelia will make antibodies to absolutely everything um, much more than before. So we see antibodies to flu go up. Mice don't get flu. You know, we see, I mean, you. I'm sure you can just get me your, your favorite antigen and I can put it on an ELISA plate and I can show you that the mice will make more of these antibodies after Borrelia infection. And so, what that means is if you have a predisposition already for making autoantibodies, right? I mean, that's that cannot be good, right? I mean, that um, I think that that would be one trigger, uh, perhaps of a Borrelia infection enhancing or um, speeding up a process of autoimmune response development, which usually happens over time, right? Or, or maybe just 
this pot boiling, right? Bring have sort of that final nail on the coffin. Yeah. Yeah, and that's fascinating. So you're saying that people, when they're infected with Borrelia, their antibody response to other things that aren't even Borrelia related increase, and therefore it gen- your body generates these antibodies. You have, you know, this this inflammation from the antibody response, and therefore you're now having increased autoimmune like symptoms, right? Yeah, so we we have done it with mice. Um, we know that happens in mice. We have actually uh, taken some human samples and we asked a very simple question, not the complicated question you're asking about autoimmune antibodies. But we have just asked how much immunoglobulin is in the serum antibodies uh, in the serum of mice, uh, of sorry, of humans that are infected with um, Borrelia um, and uh, compared to a age and sex matched control population that hasn't been affected. And it turns out these samples were from John Orcott and um, here at the, at the Lyme uh, Center in the medical school. And there was a statistically significant increase of antibodies in the people that were infected with Borrelia. Now it wasn't, it didn't look anything close to the dramatic changes we see in mice. So that, that I want to say that upfront, but it was significant in three different cohorts of patients and controls that we tested. So, and the, the thing that was striking to me was the way the samples were tested, uh, were taken was, um, there was a first sample taken um, as the patient was diagnosed um, and was then later confirmed by CDC criteria to have Lyme disease. And then the last sample, another sample was taken six months later, another sample was taken uh, a year later. And it didn't matter whether we tested at visit one, visit two, or visit three. The, the patients that had Lyme disease had higher levels of antibodies even a year later compared to the control group. And again, it was subtle. It wasn't like a dramatic difference, but it was statistically significantly different. And so I think that's, that's amazing, right? I mean, I, I, that, that shows you that there's something about the immune response that is being reset in some ways we don't really fully understand um, in, in humans after Lyme disease. So do you think what the effect is, is that it essentially burns out the immune system because it's just going crazy and just producing antibodies to everything and anything to the point where it just ultimately wears out? Yeah, that is, uh, it's one possibility that it's doing that. Um, I want to, I want to understand why that's what we're doing in the lab right now. You know why? So then we can answer that question. You know, I said, is this sort of slash and burn strategy, you know, activate everything and initiate, and there are some signs of it, but, but on the other hand, you know, these mice are not overtly sick. So if you, if it would do that, you would think the mice would be really ill, right? And 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 they're not. I mean, so and they are not all signs of inflammatory markers up that you would usually associate with it, right? So it's not sort of a general just you know blasting everything. So while all of this is happening, the mice um, can still evade the raptors. You know, not that we expose them to raptors in our animal rooms, but but you know, in 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 I think in real life they can still live and do all the stuff that they usually do. Yeah. Well, coming back to I, I just I want to circle back to the the weirdness of Lyme again, right? Because we talked about the macrophages right off the bat. We should be eating it up, and we're not. But then we talked about the memory cells and the, and the, the lymph nodes specifically, not the fluid. And the lymph nodes get disintegrated, right? 
But is there a connection between the lymph nodes being disintegrated because they they are the ones that mount the memory cells, or am I, or is there no connection there? So it sounds like you were saying the lymph nodes mount the memories, the memory response from an antibody standpoint, and because Lyme is disintegrating or you know really damaging our lymph nodes, we're not mounting the memory cell response to to Lyme bacteria. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, for for a while we thought that we had the answer and that uh, that we didn't get these memory cells and these long-lived plasma cells that are churning out antibodies because the lymph tissues uh, were sort of disintegrating. Um, unfortunately, every, all the research we have done uh, suggests it's not that simple. So um, it, that's happening and it probably isn't helpful, but it probably isn't the only thing um, that there's more going on um, that we need to understand that may have to do with um, uh, the the uh, cells of the immune system that are helping B cells make antibodies such as T cells. Um, those cells make um cytokines that make substances that make B cells be better doing what they're usually doing. And so they also seem to not be doing exactly what they're supposed to. They also have that weirdness about them. So we are we're just embarking on some studies um, and have found some interesting defects on that side as well. So Lyme is impacting not only B cells, but T cells as well, it sounds like. At least it looks like that to us, yeah. And B cells and T cells are both uh, at a high level immune cells that are mounted in response to a pathogen to address the pathogen. They're just different ways of doing it in a, you know, in a more detailed way, correct? Uh, correct. Those are the cells that um, that are very specific, that will respond very specifically to a particular pathogen. So the T cells and B cells that respond to flu are not the same T and B cells that respond to uh, uh, you know, Borreborgdophori, uh, whereas the macrophages are macrophages and they don't care whether you're a flu virus or whether you're a pathogen, you would just go after of, uh, another pathogen. Yeah. So what are you currently working on? Well, I also want to highlight Rich's point because I love when there's a ton of literature out there on the web about you and you always credit your research students to being a part of your success. So what are you and your team currently working on? It sounds like you're you're working on a lot of different things, but what area are you looking at to be able to make some potential breakthroughs in the near future to help people that are suffering with chronic Lyme disease? Because as you know, we love geeking out and we geeked out a lot and we, you know, we, we're super appreciative of that, but most of our listeners are very sick with Lyme disease and looking for hope. Yes. So sharing your current research and what you think may be on the horizon can give our listeners some hope despite all this, this really scary stuff we've been talking about uh, when you know and how serious and how smart Lyme disease is. Yes, uh, one of the one of the things I'm excited about right now that we so we are continuing trying to understand what why we don't make mount these really good adaptive immune responses. So that's ongoing work in the lab, and we have some ideas of of what's going on, some better ideas. It's very it's slow going. I have to say these are difficult experiments. So I wish we could sort of do it 10 times faster and moving my lab across the country certainly didn't help with <laughs> speeding things up. <laughs> but we're we're gearing up, we are, we're back. But um, one thing I'm really excited about is that in, the, in, the, in uh, thinking about how these, the antibodies I was talking about, that, that this really increase in these non-specific antibodies uh, that potentially uh, that we also found, although in much, much less uh, strong uh, version to occur in humans, um, 
that could explain some of the symptoms in, in my head that um, people suffering from long-term uh, effects that uh, they have these, as you said, these autoimmune-like components, right? There is some autoimmune, something that smells like autoimmune disease to it. So we were wondering what could explain um, these really strong increases in these non-specific antibody responses. And we, we didn't end up finding that. We're still working on that, but we stumbled across something else that uh, we just received a DOD grant to, to actually um, go after. And that is, we tested the, the blood of the mice for the presence of what's called endotoxin. It's a piece of a gram-negative bacteria. So those are bacteria that um, not Borrelia burgdorferi, but um, a lot of the microbiota um, is is uh, has these pieces. Um, it's not normal for you to have these circulating. Um, that's also called APS, lipopolysaccharide. Um, it's not normal to have this APS circulate in your blood. Um, you um, one has that as part if one develops. Um, septicemia, right? If one gets really, really ill with overwhelming bacteria infections. So, so why were the mice having these, um, uh, having this endotoxin, this APS circulating in blood after Borrelia infection? So we um, infected mice that we had completely germ-free that have no microbiota and we infected those with Borrelia burgdorferi. And I said, can you, will you have APS in your blood after infected with Borrelia? And they didn't. So we know that the APS is coming from the microbiota. Um, so to me, that was exciting because again, when I talk to people that are afflicted with um, long-term effects of Lyme disease, they often report this effect it has on their gastrointestinal system, on on how they have to be really careful on what they eat and how they eat and that they're often ill from things that they could eat before, but now they can't. All of that points to some sort of disturbance of the gastrointestinal system, which to me, it could be affecting the microbiota. So we, so I got very excited about that. So we, we sent samples off um, to um, a lab and we asked them to sequence the microbiota of the mice that have been infected with Borrelia and those uh, that were age and sex matched and were just sitting on the shelf happily. Uh, I hopefully happily. I have no reason to believe they weren't happy, but I don't know. And and um, the microbiota of the mice that were infected with Borrelia had changed. Um, and and so Borrelia does something. It interacts with the microbiota in the gut. So and then we asked. Okay, so we we identified, and so I have to say, um, you know, this is this has only been done once. So um, maybe next time it won't happen again. Although I feel pretty confident, I cannot promise you it won't. Um, so, but that's why I'm excited about it, and I share it with you because I'm excited about this because I think it really does, it it does um, would have some real impact. So we also uh, measured. Um, the, the um, some of the products of the microbiota that are good for humans, and they are called short-chain fatty acids. It's just a, a metabolite that we that our cells need, and we found that not only were the microbiota different, 
that the, the, some of the microbiota that are very good at making these short-chain fatty acids were actually increased and now making more of a particular short-chain fatty acid. And that short-chain fatty acid has been shown in the literature to be really important for Borrelia to grow. So, wow. so if if this is reproducible, you know, it's a big if, but but if we can reproduce this finding, what what um what might happen is that evolutionary again, Borea has found ways to change the host in a way that's good for itself. And um and that may have very bad consequences for, for the host, um, uh, altering the, the gut microbiota, right, um, in some ways. Um, so. Yeah, and we know there's a connection between the gut and the immune system. And, and as we do more research, we're making this, this huge connection between our microbiome and our gut health and our immune system. And it sounds like we need a strong immune response to be able to overcome Lyme. And we're you're working on trying to identify various ways to accomplish that. But one really cool, I think, indirect way you just described is Lyme disease is changing your gut microbi microbiome in your gut to create certain bacteria that helps Lyme survive and grow and thrive. And if we can maybe change the, the makeup of the microbiome through some mechanism, that can indirectly affect the immune system and therefore allow us to potentially deal with and maybe even eradicate Lyme is what you're thinking, right? And yeah, at a minimum, I could starve the barrier maybe of some of the things that really would like to have. You know, I don't think it's enough to to get rid of it, but and uh, because we need that as well, right? So this is sort of the the problem. It's with these pathogens that establish persistence because what's good for them often is also good for us, right? So, so, but but I think it gets, you know, I I mean I don't. Why is this happening is what we try to find out. Is it because Borrelia interferes with the immune system? And by interfering with the immune system, it um, allows the gut barrier to sort of get leaky, what we call leaky, right? Because that's why. Um, or is there something else that Borrelia is doing uh, that then affects um, uh, the microbiota and that then indirectly can also affect the immune system, right? Um, so what, which way around does it go and, you know, who, who controls what I think will be really important because for treatment, you know, where do we start? You know, what, what do we have to fix? Um, um, but yeah, so that, that is something I'm, I'm excited about because it brings us a little closer to some of the, um, symptoms that um, patients are suffering from. Well, you know, Professor, I, I think another reason why it's really exciting is because of the impact that uh, the changes on the gut biome has on your emotions and your capacity, your capacity to um, protect yourself and participate in your own care and even believe that you can get better, right? So yes. it, it does certainly make sense that this very diabolical bacteria would not only compete with us by eating, uh, you know, our, our gut and growing, uh, you know, growing based on uh, eating our gut and also having an impact on our, our, our physical immune response. But of course, then if it puts us, uh, it, it, it impacts us neurolog neurologically and, uh, yes. and psychologically, yes. that, that increased level of stress and our lack of, you know, and decreasing our psychological, um, I guess, resilience um, or flexibility makes it more likely that our immune system will then be under more stress and less likely to be able to defend it. So it, it is a very sophisticated approach to breaking down our defenses. Yes, it, it's 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 horrid, right? I mean, because it's 
it, it, it's not that it goes out there and says, okay, let me make them feel really bad, right? But, but you know, if, if the outcome of creating an optimal environment for itself is affecting your gut, it is, has a lot of these effects you just mentioned, right? It's, um, it also makes it a really complex disease, right? Because, um, and you can see how that may affect different people differently because your microbiota, my microbiota are not the same, right? So changes to my and your microbiota will have different effects on, on us, you know? And so that is another effect where, where it then becomes very hard to sort of, um, yeah. So how do you, how do you treat that? We talk about herd immunity, right? Um, so yeah, that's yeah. why, right? so, yeah. So, I mean, some people have described our, our, our gut biome as being as diverse as our fingerprints. Like each yes. one of us is so different, right? And, yes. you know, we, we've had some folks on this podcast share with us that they've done fecal implants and that has been very effective in assisting them in overcoming their, their, their disease. And, you know, just based on your research, uh, yeah. which again, I am so excited. I can't tell you how excited uh, I am to hear what your, what your research is. you're excited because I'm excited too. And I, I actually, you know, I, um, I have to admit, I'm not a big proponent of long-term antibiotic treatment because I think that the negative effects of antibiotics outweigh any positive effects and in, in, in part because of this humongous impact of the microbiota and and the importance of the microbiota for for health, right? So so a more nuanced approach is really required. And if we under, if if we can collect more data and have sort of scientific studies to and and you know there is a paper out by Kim Lewis's lab um, uh, showing an effect of uh, uh, Lyme disease on on human microbiota right or there's an association there I mean so actually that study is out there before our mouse study um, that we have undertaken so we were very excited that 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 was study was out there because it makes us fear that this is real right but we can I think we can. By doing these studies on mice, you know, yes, it's slow, and yes, it's not mice, and yes, it's not gonna give you a cure tomorrow. But, 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 you know, we can figure out. Uh, hopefully, we can figure out the mechanism, right? And then once you know how and why it works that way, you then you know what to how to interfere. Right? Yeah, and 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 so even even now, the folks who are listening to this podcast are going to be able to focus on another area of their body that might give them, uh, you know, a shortcut to overcome their challenges. And maybe just as a result of the conversation we're having, people are going to have a better, uh, a better outcome because they're going to be focusing more on their gut and they're going to be focusing more on that part of their body so that they can, they can perhaps shortcut their, uh, their journey. That would be amazing. <laughs> So I do, I, I want to ask, because we've been focusing this conversation heavily on Borrelia and Lyme disease, but from your experience, because obviously you're not only a Lyme expert, but you are the director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Disease Research and Education Institute for Johns Hopkins, right? So other tick-borne illnesses like Babesia and Anaplasma and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, are they as advanced and sophisticated as Lyme? Or do you believe that Lyme is the most, you know, ship safety, you know, ship shifting advanced bacteria of, of them all, right? Because sometimes people focus too much on Lyme. Sometimes people say, hey, uh, Babesia can be just as bad. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think Lyme disease is the elephant in the room. Um, it is by far the most common tick transmitted disease. But I do fear that it is important that when we, as we are 
tackling this problem of Lyme disease that we are proactively thinking about um, as we are doing our research and, and looking what else is out there, um, whether there's anything we can learn from that that we can apply to other infectious diseases and in terms of you know, we need, so, sorry, I'm being very circumspect here. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, is, I think we still need to understand better of what the risk is to getting a tick-borne disease. And um, we need to know that for Lyme, but we need to know it for other um, uh, uh, pathogens. And there are emerging pathogens that are really scary. I think Provasin virus, Heartland virus, these are scary um, uh, diseases. Yeah, they're very rare. Um, uh, but we don't really know how often we haven't diagnosed these infections because they weren't deadly. We, we know of a couple of cases um, of these um, uh, when, when they cause death, right? But we really don't know the prevalence, you know? Maybe most of people get it and never know they, they have it, you know? So, so I, I feel very strongly that we cannot just focus on Lyme, that that I'm glad the Institute was called the Lyme and uh, Tick-Borne Diseases Institute, because I think we don't want to study um, each of these diseases in isolation. Um, there are a lot of things we can do where we can sort of uh, piggyback, right? So if we, if we want to evaluate tick populations for the prevalence of Lyme, or um, with all the modern technologies we have at our fingertips now, we can we can broaden that out. We can say, let me look for all pathogens that can be carried by by um, uh, by ticks, right? With very little extra effort. I mean, don't want to underestimate it, but but with not much more extra effort, right? And so it behooves us to do that, you know, whenever we can. And and certainly, my hope for the institute is that as we grow. Um, that we have experts also on on these other um, pathogens that that you mentioned because um, uh, you know there are increasing reports that they are also on the rise. Well, Professor, I want you know we were really excited about the name of your of your um, program as well because we here at Tick Boot Camp do not define Lyme disease I guess the way it is traditionally defined. So we define Lyme disease as a polymicrobial, multisystemic chronic infectious disease. So because we believe it's polymicrobial, when we heard the very, I think, enlightened name that you used to name your program, that we knew you were really right on, that you really get it. And I think everybody who's listening to you today understands how brilliant you are and how, you, how, how much you really do get it. So I, I just want you to know, we really love you. We love the work that you're doing. And I know Matt probably has a couple more questions, but we've, we've had you for almost two hours. So we are going to wind down because you've just been really, really generous to us in our community. And, and if I didn't already tell you how much we love you, we really love you and love the work <laughs> you're doing. And, um, and, and at least two Lime Geeks are very, very excited and really inspired by you and the work that you're doing. So thank you. Uh, thank you. I just have to clarify that the, the name of the Institute is not one that I came up with. So I embraced it and I love it, but it was actually um, the people that hired me um, uh, that did it. So. Well, it, it, it does not surprise me that the people who are enlightened enough to not just hire you, but pull you away from where you were, would also be enlightened enough to properly name the Institute. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you're giving credit where credit is due, but, uh, you know, it, it is wonderful what you're doing. And it is really exciting, at, at least to me and my fellow Lime Geek, Matt, that, uh, you know, that we have you here. 
Uh, in Maryland, there's a poster on the West Coast, and we're uh, really <laughs> excited that uh, so many of the really smart young people that you're going to inspire to be the leaders in the future are going to be blessed by uh, by having contact with you. So, Matt, uh, I, I don't know if you have anything else you'd like to say before we, before we say goodbye, but we are we are two hours in. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my questions because maybe, Professor, we can do a follow up sometime down the road. I ha I could go on for another two hours, but you have been absolutely <laughs> amazing. I mean, you made our our week, frankly. Rich and I have been looking forward to this all week, and we we had a long. Both of us had very long weeks at work, and we just like we're looking forward to like little little kids all week for this interview. And you did not disappoint, Professor. Uh, we I am inspired as somebody who's been you know personally impacted significantly by Lyme disease. I'm inspired by your work. And I just want to say thank you on behalf of everybody impacted by Lyme disease for dedicating your life to this purpose and for dedicating your life to helping us get relief because there aren't many people doing it. And there aren't many people that are, are willing to dedicate their time and energy to such a controversial disease, yet you're at the forefront of it. And I know and Rich knows and we're confident that we're just going to continue to make more and more progress with brilliant people like you doing all this research. So I have this this, re, this this refreshed sense of hope and inspiration because of you and because of this podcast. And I know all of our listeners will as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I know, Rich, that we have had you for two hours, so we will let you go. But please, if you ever would like to come back for a follow-up, you know, we'd, we'd love to do some more deep dive discussions with you on all things Lyme and tick-borne illnesses and the immune system, which I love talking about. Yes, no, and anytime. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. This was, this was fun. Um, and um, I really also admire uh, you and also others in the in the Lyme community of, you know, like the DOD grant. I just um, I'm very close to getting. Um, um, it wouldn't be there if it wasn't for people like you bringing this um, to the forefront of people's attention. And and um, so I certainly have been benefited tremendously. And and it's very inspiring, I have to say, talking to people um, that are afflicted by the disease. Because I've been working on influenza virus infections for a very long time. Nobody has ever come up to me and said, I'm so um, grateful for what you're doing. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and um, it's it's inspiring. It makes you want to work a little harder and try a little more. And and um, I really uh, yeah. So thank you for for all your efforts as well, and on behalf of all the people that stand behind you. So and uh, thank you. And please ask me anytime. I'd be happy to be back. <laughs>